the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello, I'm Rebecca Cousin, co-head of our data privacy practice, and I'm joined today by Cindy Knott, head of data privacy knowledge. With the Brexit transition period ending on the 31st of December, it's time, if you haven't already, to refocus on Brexit planning. Whilst it has been the topic of international transfers that has received the most coverage in the data privacy context, there are other aspects too that need to be considered. And so in this session, Cindy and I are going to cover a number of these as well as international transfers. Firstly, it's worth me explaining the legislative framework. As you'll know, the main privacy law in the EU is the General Data Protection Regulation, referred to as the GDPR. With effect from 1st of January 2021, the UK will write the GDPR into domestic law with a few minor tweaks, for instance, replacing references to EU bodies with the equivalent UK ones. We will therefore effectively have the EU GDPR and the UK GDPR. With that background out of the way, Cindy, could you explain when each regime applies? Of course. Um, so obviously, if you're based in the EU, the EU GDPR will apply to you. And likewise, if you're in the UK, the UK GDPR will apply. It's also pretty well known that the EU GDPR has extraterritorial effect and so will apply to non-EU businesses either offering goods or services to people in the EU or monitoring their behaviour whilst in the EU. The UK GDPR being essentially a copy out of the EU GDPR also has extraterritorial effect on the same basis. A UK business could therefore be subject to both the UK GDPR and the EU GDPR. However, that's not the end of the story, as under the EU withdrawal agreement, the EU GDPR will continue to apply to personal data of non-UK persons, which was processed in the UK under the GDPR during the transition period. This provision only applies unless and until the UK obtains an adequacy decision from the EU. We'll come back to adequacy later, but given the current uncertainty here, this provision is likely to be relevant to a significant number of businesses. So, for example, those that have a centralised HR function in the UK, which processes personal data about employees in other countries, or those that have customers, whether corporate or individuals, outside the UK. Cindy, that's a really good point and one that's easy to miss. What do you think companies should be doing about this? In the short term, whilst the data privacy regimes are aligned, there'll be few practical implications where both regimes apply for either of the reasons I've just mentioned, given the requirements will be the same under both. And so really from a day-to-day -day perspective, we expect companies to continue to have one compliance programme. One point to note, however, is that if a company is based in one jurisdiction and is caught by the extraterritorial provisions of the other regime, then it needs to have appointed a representative in that jurisdiction. For non-EU businesses that already have a representative in the EU or the UK, they will also likewise need to consider if they need to appoint a second in the other jurisdiction. And then finally, the other point worth noting is just from a breach perspective, if there were to be a data breach in respect of data that is subject to both regimes, the notifications to data protection authorities under both regimes would be required. Yeah, no, and that's a good point again, because, um, and of course, this reflects that businesses that become subject to both the EU and the, e uh, and the UK GDPR 
will run the risk of being fined under both regimes for the same breach. I mean, of course, this is no different to the existing position regarding global investigations where a business may be sanctioned, for instance, in the US and the EU for the same incident. But the size of the possible penalties in the context of the EU and UK GDPR, up to 4% of global turnover in each case, is far higher, raising the risk profile and potentially shifting the balance on risk assessments. I think on the subject of enforcement, many businesses have to date benefited from the one-stop-shop mechanism. This meant that businesses had one lead EU data privacy regulator who would bring enforcement action for the whole of the EU. However, unless you can show that you have a so-called main establishment in the EU after Brexit, this will cease to be available. Not only would you therefore be subject to UK and EU enforcement, but multiple regulators in the EU could in theory at least, bring enforcement action. It's therefore important to assess whether you do have a main establishment in the EU and so identify your lead supervisory authority. The involvement of different regulators in enforcement to those to which a business is currently subject does also change the risk profile due to different interpretations, regulatory priorities um, and approaches to enforcement. For example, while the ICO's enforcement action has primarily focused on data security to date, with it now having issued three fines under the GDPR, the Spanish regulator has taken action in respect of a much broader range of matters, with over 120 fines having been issued. If a different regulator therefore has jurisdiction post-Brexit, this will change the risk profile of different processing activities. And it is worth reviewing previous risk-based decisions to ensure that they still stand in the light of a changed regulatory context. One area of potential divergence going forward in enforcement approach may be in the area of international transfers. There's been much movement on this recently. Cindy, could you explain the latest position on international transfers? Thanks, Rebecca. So the concern here has been to ensure that data can continue to flow freely from the EU to the UK and vice versa. And the reason for this concern being, of course, that under the EU GDPR, there are restrictions on personal data leaving the EEA. The UK GDPR contains identical restrictions, but in this case applying to transfers to jurisdictions outside the UK. The aspect that's received um, most focus um, has been whether the UK will re receive what is referred to as an adequacy decision from the EU. That's basically a decision that the UK provides an essentially equivalent level of protection to personal data so that such data can continue to flow freely. For transfers from the UK to the EEA, the UK government has helpfully confirmed that these can continue to flow on the basis of a temporary adequacy decision in respect of EEA countries. However, the position for transfers from the EU to the UK is still unclear. Given where we are in the year, a decision from the EU by the end of December is looking increasingly unlikely. Um, so you might wonder what the issue is here, given that the UK will have near identical privacy legislation. But the answer to that is that in addition to the data privacy legislation itself, the UK government surveillance laws also need to be considered by the EU. So, Cindy, given uh, the current position, you know, what, what do you advise organisations to be doing now? Well, I think we have to assume that there won't be an adequacy decision in time. So organisations should identify now if there is another basis under the GDPR for their transfers. Um, obviously, the first step is going to be to identify which data flows are affected 
and then to assess which of the other options under the EU GDPR is the most appropriate. Some of the transfers may fall under the so-called derogations, but these are narrow categories for occasional transfers, and so really the majority of data flows won't meet these requirements. Instead, for most organisations, the answer will be to put in place the standard contractual clauses between the EU entity and the UK recipient, these being the contractual provisions approved by the EU for this very purpose. But of course, there has been the Schrems 2 case which made the headlines this year. Um, Rebecca, how does this case um, impact the, the approach? Yeah, no, it's a, a uh, definitely uh a change uh, following that. The, the case upheld the validity of the standard contractual clauses uh, very helpfully, but additional steps are now required with there being an obligation on the EU entity which wishes to transfer the personal data to undertake an assessment of the regime in the UK, as with any other non-EU country, to determine if the standard contractual clauses would prove uh, provide sufficient protection in the circumstances. The European Data Protection Board, the group of all EU data protection authorities, has recently issued guidance setting out the factors they consider should be taken into account in this assessment and suggesting additional steps that could be taken if that initial assessment suggests that the standard contractual clauses are not, in of themselves at least, sufficient to provide the required level of protection. This assessment will also then need, need to be factored into organisations' Brexit planning just in the same way as any other international transfer. But of course it doesn't end here, Cindy, because of course the EU Commission is now consulting on updated standard contractual clauses, so what's the impact of that? Well, they're not um, enforced yet, they, they are still in draft, so um, I agree they're unlikely um, to, to be enforced before the end of the year, in fact, um, and organisations should therefore proceed with putting in place the existing standard contractual clauses. Um, they should also, however, put in place a process for entering into new clauses no later than a year after the new ones come into force. Thanks. Um, one other thing I did want to mention is the potential need to change the processing ground that organisations are relying on. This most obviously arises where special category data is being processed, given that the processing grounds for these are, in the main, set out in national legislation. If processing special category data in the UK, where that data is also subject to the EU GDPR, the relevant processing ground under the EU GDPR will therefore have to be assessed as well. It can also arise for other personal data where the processing ground re relied upon is where the processing is necessary to comply with a legal obligation under EU or member state law. Obviously from January that's not going to include the UK. So if a EU business is relying upon a UK law uh, to fulfil fulfill this legal obligation basis, it's going to need to identify a different ground, most likely the legitimate interest ground. This change would then need to be reflected in amendments to records of processing, privacy notices and other internal documentation. Cindy, was there anything else you wanted to raise? Well, one quick thing I wanted to mention is processor terms. The mandatory requirements for processor terms under the EU GDPR refer in a number of places to EU or member state law. In the UK GDPR, this has been changed to refer to UK domestic law. This will therefore need to be reflected in the drafting of these provisions. 
whilst we don't envisage that there will be any desire in practice to amend existing agreements, companies should at least be factoring this in for the drafting of new contracts. Good point. Thanks, Cindy. Well, that brings us to the end of what was a very quick overview of a few of the key Brexit planning areas for data privacy. There is more detail on each of these and other areas in our recent article, Beyond Adequacy, Brexit's Wider Data Privacy Implications, which you can find on our website. Thank you. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.